What's going on, anesthesia nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerd Podcast, where we talk about all things veterinary anesthesia and pain management. Today, I am really excited about our guest, because not only is she just a like badass human being, uh, but also she is a registered veterinary technician, a veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia and analgesia, and also a VTS in clinical practice, specifically an exotic companion animal. She's worked for UC Davis for a really long time and got started in the companion exotics department and is currently the anesthesia department supervisor. So she knows a lot about anesthesia, pain management, and specifically how to deal with them in exotics. And yes, I am talking about the one, the only, Jody nugent Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I am like I uh, all the people who have like a lot of letters after their uh, their name. I always want to make sure like I get all those accomplishments in there because it is very important. And I think you know technicians work really hard, especially if you have worked hard to become specialized. That's really cool. So let's talk, Jody. Um, so first of all, why don't you tell the anesthesia nerds listening in kind of where you're at right now, what you do on a daily basis, kind of what things you like anesthetizing before we get into today's case. Sure. Um, I love all things exotics, but I love dogs and cats and, and uh, large animals too. So I, I guess I am an anesthesia nerd. I just, I love it all. Uh, but I do have a special place in my heart for the exotics. And um, I think that uh, any day that I can do exotic animal anesthesia is a good day. Uh, currently, I'm um, the supervisor for both large and small animal anesthesia um, at UC Davis, and so I have many duties <laughs> that I encompass. Um, I wish I did more cases um, right now because I do have so many supervisory duties. Um, I'm still on the floor rolling around with all the cases and doing things, but I would like to be doing more exotic cases and more um, dog, cat, and uh, large animal stuff. So, Jody, how did you kind of get started, you know, back in the day when you started at UC Davis, how did you decide, hey, I really like the exotic portion of it? I think most of us, as we go through school, we kind of get funneled into your either large animal or your small companion animal. But how did you decide, was there a certain case or, you know, something that happened where you were like, man, I really, yeah, I want to go work with birds and reptiles, et cetera. <laughs> it was a fluke, I think, honestly. Let's just be absolutely honest. I was 20 years old when I got hired at UC Davis. I got very lucky. I was a baby technician, just became an RVT, and um, I was applying for any job that I could get, basically. And I thought I wanted to do emergency and critical care and work in ICU. Um, and <laughs> I can't imagine doing that now, let's be honest. So, um, yeah, so I just really wanted to get my foot in the door, and I was willing to just get whatever experience I could. And then I was bound and determined to move into ER stuff. And I got hired um, in the exotics department, and I absolutely fell in love, spent 10 years there, um, had a lot of great mentorship, but I truly love anesthesia. And the anesthesia that you do with exotics is not a lot of the really critical, really fun nail-biting anesthesia. And so I really wanted to have experience with that. And so that meant moving to doing more dogs and cats. And so, you know, you don't do a lot of sternotomies and rabbits and, you know, a lot of, you know, crazy anesthesia cases and chinchillas and, you know, lizards and such. And so I moved to anesthesia, became a VTS in anesthesia. And now I feel like I kind of have the best of both worlds because I get to do uh, both exotics, large and small. 
That's awesome. So right now, let's get into a case because we like to keep this case based and kind of give the listeners some tips that they can use in in clinical practice. So Jody, your case for today is we have a two-year-old rabbit. And you can tell that I don't work with exotics because I don't even know, a br- other than the New Zealand, I don't know rabbit breeds. <laughs> we could do a New Zealand so, white. That's fine. <laughs> great. I know them just because that's what I work with in school. That's what we work with in the lab. Perfect. So let's say someone has adopted this uh, New Zealand and they bring it in and this rabbit needs to be spayed. Now, I think that this is very intimidating to a lot of people, um, not only because they're not sure what drugs to choose, but then becomes the dreaded rabbit intubation portion. <laughs> yep. Um, so why don't you walk us through kind of what would be your approach to this case if you were the anesthetist assigned to a rabbit spay procedure? Sure. So two years old, a New Zealand white, um, that's a good age for that patient. We definitely want to get them spayed uh, due to like reproductive cancers and things like that. Um, But if I was assigned this case, obviously I'm going to start with a complete physical examination. And I think that's one of the really important things that technicians should be doing um, if they're anesthetizing the patient. So a lot of times it's really easy for the veterinarian to just say, oh, everything's normal, here's the drugs, we're going to anesthetize it for a spay. But I truly believe that if you're the person inducing, maintaining, and recovering that patient, you need to put your hands on that patient and you need to do your own exam. And it doesn't need to be, you know, a neurologic exam and CP deficits and all these things, but you do need to escort the chest, listen to the heart, listen to the lungs, palpate a pulse if you can, capillary refill time, mucous membrane color, all of the basics. And then you should start thinking about the type of case you're doing and formulating a plan. Um, I always like to say there's no such thing as a black and white protocol, and that's even true for space, right? So maybe 97% of your spay protocols are going to be the same because they're young, healthy animals, but not every spay that walks through the door is going to be young and healthy. And so we shouldn't just have that stamp spay protocol that we use for our patients. So I guess after I do my examination, I'm going to think about that case, think about any comorbidities that patient may have, and then formulate a plan and talk to my veterinarian about it. Yeah, and I totally agree. I I love kind of what you're saying about the technician being responsible and listening to the patient and kind of getting their own exam, Um, because I got to tell you, For me at work, if somebody's having a problem with a patient and they call me in, one of my first questions to them is, did the pulses feel like this before drugs? Did the chest sound like this before drugs? So, you know, I want to know that you have listened to that patient and you kind of know what their normal is before drugs. Absolutely. All right. So let's walk it through. Let's say we have we have normal blood work and we have a normal physical exam and the, the veterinarian would like your assistance being a VTS, what would you recommend as far as pre-medication? I know it's our dogs and cat friends nowadays. We're doing a lot of home pharmaceuticals like trazodone and gabapentin beforehand. Um, I don't really know about that kind of stuff in our rabbit friends uh, or kind of what is the best pre-medication for these patients? I will tell you, Jody, I have not done a rabbit (laughs) bait in probably five years. So I am a firm believer in using full mu opioids in these guys. So it's kind of interesting, like I, you know, practicing uh, exotic animal medicine back in the early 2000s, 
I will be honest in that we didn't use a lot of full mu opioids. People were scared to use it because, um, you know, rabbits and chinchillas, guinea pigs, those guys are known for GI stasis or ileus, right? And so we know that full mu opioids can cause that. And so people just wouldn't use it because they were so afraid of ileus. And is really kind of tragic because we weren't treating pain properly. And like, what else causes GI stasis? Pain. So it's like, we should be treating the pain. And if they get ileus, then we treat the ileus instead. And so, you know, we would use a lot of butorphanol. And then when buprenorphine became more popular, we would uh, use that. But then we quickly learned that really we should be using full mu opioids when appropriate in these guys. And so for a spay... If you have a good surgeon that's quick and has soft tissue handling skills and they're gentle, then buprenorphine is probably fine. But, you know, not everyone has great tissue handling skills. And so I tend to use full mu opioids in these guys. So like a typical pre-medication protocol would be something like morphine or hydromorphone, for example, methadone, any of the full mu opioids. And then we use a lot of benzodiazepines in exotic animals as part of our pre-medication protocol. Uh, it's really safe for these guys in general, and uh, we don't see like excitation and things like that. Um, and it works really well uh, where, you know, in a lot of the dog and cat patients, unless they're like very young or very old or very sick, we don't see a lot of, you know, good results with benzodiazepines as part of a pre-med, at least in my opinion. Oh, no. Listen, I'm, uh, <laughs> I always say, like, there's nothing that's going to take a spicy cat from, like, you know, the uh, Taco Bell mild sauce to, like, fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you take that two-year-old cat and add in um, midazolam. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, um, and, but um, you can also use dexmedetomidine um, and other drugs like that as well. So if you wanted to add ketamine as part of a, a pre-medication protocol, dexmedetomidine, there's a lot of options that we use. Uh, but I would say like just a basic go-to is a benzo and a full mu opioid and then plus or minus other things depending on the patient. Okay, that's good to know. So I do have heard of some practitioners who are a little more worried about using something like dexmedetomidine in our rabbit patients, but you're utilizing that yep. sometimes? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially if they're a really like stressed out or scared rabbit uh, because, you know, a stressed rabbit is not going to get us anywhere good. So utilizing the drugs that we have at hand, you know, knowing your pharmacology is, is a really good thing for these guys. And like kind of as a side note, these are not little dogs and cats, you know, so the anesthetic uh, dose ranges are quite different, like shockingly different compared to a dog or a cat. So it's really important to know what drug dosages we should be using uh, for the different species that we're working with. So having a exotic animal specific formulary is a good idea. But just for example, like in a dog or a cat, maybe you use like 0.2 mg per keg of a midazolam. In a rabbit, you're going to use like one to two mg per keg. So the dose <laughs> range is hugely different. <laughs> Opioids, the same thing, like much, much higher dosing. <laughs> I do remember that. I, when I worked with a veterinarian that did more uh, rabbit procedures, um, she basically used the kitty magic. Um, I think it was like hydromorphone and dexmed and ketamine. And I just remember looking at the doses being like, this cannot be right. <laughs> this seems like a lot. Are you sure? Uh, and, you know, interestingly enough, uh, it definitely worked and it was needed. And, you know, um, I learned that, uh, boy, they burn through those drugs pretty fast. So <laughs> They do, for sure. <laughs> and I think like some of the issues that people have with 
hard catheterization or not being able to get them intubated has to do with inappropriate drug dosaging. Yeah, that probably makes a lot of sense now now that you say that. So bringing up catheterization and intubation. So let's say we have our patient and they are sedated. Um, do you usually try to do an IV catheter for every patient and intubation for every surgical patient? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, if we're going outside of rabbits and we're talking about some small rodents and, you know, special rodents like chinchillas and guinea pigs, it's going to be a lot harder to intubate easily. Um, but rabbits specifically and exotics in general, we should always put an IV catheter in when at all possible. We should always intubate when at all possible. There's pros and cons to everything. So we have to weigh those out. But for your basic rabbit spay or neuter, for sure. Um, IV catheter, usually in the cephalic vein, uh, but you can certainly use lateral saphenous as well. A lot of times people want to jump to the ears, and that's fine. Just make sure you, A, use the right vessel. The big, juicy vessel in the middle of the penna is the artery. That's not the vein. So don't use that unless you're going to be doing, you know, blood gases or direct blood pressure monitoring. The veins that are actually in the penna of the ear are actually really tiny for the most part. And so I tend not to put an IV catheter in the ear just because of sheer size. So I, I use cephalic or lateral saphenous. Great. Good to know because I usually would do a cephalic in these patients. Um, yeah, it was kind of drilled into me like, you know, be very cautious with the ear veins. Mm -hmm. And now I'm kind of looking at it like, ooh, just all the art, all the arterial uh, <laughs> sampling that I do in dogs and cats. And then sometimes like, oh, I wish this was a rabbit. Yep. <laughs> it's so much easier to find that artery. So let's say you have them intubated or let's actually back up. Let's talk about intubation for yeah. a moment um, because sure. I think that this is something that there's a big learning curve. Mm -hmm. But I do think that once you figure it out, it's great. And yeah. I, I personally, you know, love having a pained airway on each anesthetic procedure, especially if an emergency arises. So what do you have any advice for people who may be getting started or be really intimidated by rabbit intubation? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think we should be intubating these guys. And you're right. I think the learning curve is steep. But once you sort of nail the technique that you're going to use, you're going to get it almost every time. And I promise you that. The key to success with these guys is, like I said earlier, using the correct amount of drugs. So a lot of times people are not giving enough drugs. They're not using the right induction agents. Like, stop masking rabbits down. We should not oh. be doing that. And we can talk about oh. that after intubation. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, using the right induction agents and then getting lidocaine in the correct spot because these guys are like monkeys and cats and ferrets. They have a high propensity for, you know, laryngospasm. And so if all of those things don't line up, it's going to be much harder to get them intubated properly. It's hard to see back there. And there's many different techniques that you can use for intubation. And so what I tell people is sort of try a few different techniques, pick the one that you are more comfortable with, and then become an expert at that one technique so that you get it every time. So you can use a, like an endoscope, to look back there uh, to intubate them. You can use a laryngoscope. Um, you can do blind intubation. You can use an esophageal stethoscope to hear them breathing and make a little adapter and attach your ET tube to that. So there's many different ways to do it. Some people e even do like nasotracheal intubation. I kind of stay away from that route just because they are obligate nasal breathers. And so if we cause a lot of swelling, um, that can be hard for them um, being obligate nasal breathers. 
for the people out there who maybe don't know what that means by being an obligate nasal breather, can you expand on that? Sure. So like cats, right? Cats are pretty much obligate nasal breathers. They are not going to breathe out of their mouth unless they absolutely have to. And that's stressful for them to breathe out of their mouth. Like if you're an obligate, a horse is an obligate nasal breather too. So it's like you don't mouth breathe unless there's a huge problem. And we don't want to add that stress to that patient um, by making them mouth breathe. So we try not to cause swelling in that area if, if we can avoid it. I would just say too, like with the intubation is I think a lot of times people are scared to even try because they don't want to kill the rabbit or they maybe they have uh, someone pushing them. We don't have time for this. Just put them on a mask. I could be done in five minutes. Like we don't have time. And you can get a rabbit intubated in less than five minutes. Um, once you know the technique and have the skill set. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about um, equipment for a second. Uh, as far as, you know, you named some different pieces of equipment. People know that I love my laryngoscope and I, uh, I love different laryngoscopes. But let's talk about the endotracheal tubes themselves yes. for a minute. Um, do you have a preference on tubes? What do you think about V-gels? Because I hear a lot of people <laughs> talking about V-gels and how yeah. they are better for rabbits. I kind of go back and forth only because I, <laughs> you know, I kind of learned a technique for rabbits. And now that I know that technique, I probably wouldn't go with anything else. And I've seen one occlusion with a V-gel that went mm -hmm. wrong. And so I'm a little hesitant, but then I've also seen them go very well as well. Yeah. But since you are working with these species a lot more than I am, kind of what's your take on it? So I will be honest in that I am not a huge proponent of V-gels, but they have their place. Um, and they have a couple different places. So I always tell people, if you don't have the ability to intubate for whatever reason, you're pressed for time, no one's taught you, et cetera, you have someone pushing you, let's go, 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 then a V-gel is going to be a better option over just a mask alone. Uh, you do need to have capnography, uh, though, with it if you're going to use it. And not everyone has capnography, although I wish they did. Um, <laughs> but uh, a V-gel is a better option over a mask. So if I had to choose between a mask and a V-gel, I'm going to choose a V-gel every day of the week. Um, if I have the choice between a V-gel and traditional in endotracheal intubation, then I'm going to intubate that patient. One of the things I use a V-gel for is if we're having a difficult intubation, I will actually place a V-gel um, into the patient, and then I'll feed a polypropylene urinary catheter into the uh, lumen of the V-gel. And so it basically guides it down into the trachea for me, pull the V-gel out, slide the endotracheal tube over it. And then that way, now I have an intubated patient. So that's another way you could actually intubate. I usually do that for emergencies only, but if that's like your go-to way to intubate, that would be fine too. Let's say that we have our patient intubated and we're getting ready for surgery. Do you have any, well, actually let's back up. Did we talk about induction agents? <laughs> I wanted to mention something about the ET tubes too. Yeah, sure. So they're, they're mammals. We should be using cuffed endotracheal tubes on them if we can get them in place. Sometimes with the cuff, the way that it extends off the, you know, the endotracheal tube itself, you know, it's not flush with the tube. A lot of times it just doesn't want to go into the trachea. And so sometimes we're forced to use non-cuffed tubes. Um, and so in an ideal world, they would all be cuffed because they're mammals. They have incomplete tracheal rings, no big deal but it's just not possible sometimes. So when that's the case, I just use the same type of tube that we would use on a bird, for example. So just a non-cuffed endotracheal tube. No coal tubes, those are garbage, um, but just, <laughs> you know, like non-cuffed endotracheal tubes. 
And then actually going back to when I mentioned getting lidocaine on the right spot, because it's hard to see back there, their tracheal opening is pretty caudal in the oral cavity. Um, I will actually set them up to where they're in, you know, sternal. And then because of their anatomy, you really have to hyperextend their head um, so that you basically have a straight shot with that endotracheal tube. And so to get the lidocaine in the right spot, I'll pass the ET tube into the oral cavity, but I don't touch the larynx because I don't want to cause spasm. Um, and you'll see the fog of the breath starting to go up and down the tube as they're breathing. So you've basically flipped the soft palate. And uh, once that's in place, I take a Tomcat catheter with lidocaine attached um, in a syringe, and I feed that down the center of the ET tube. And then I deposit that lidocaine basically right over the arytenoids because I know that my tube is positioned, you know, just on top of that tracheal opening. So um, that's how I get my lidocaine in the correct spot. If you just like kind of spray it in the back of the mouth, you're not as likely to get it in the right spot and you're not as likely to get the patient intubated. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Cause I do remember with my rabbits really having that nose up to the ceiling and almost treating them like... Like when you intubate a goat or a sheep, mm -hmm, exactly. Um, really having that straight line down. Yep, so, it's, yep. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Okay, great. Now let's talk induction agents okay. uh, and see, do you have a preference? As I know that um, a lot of people are on the Alfaxalone tip right now. Um, you know, Alfaxalone is like the cool new thing as opposed to propofol. Um, do you have a preference? Yeah, I you can use anything with these guys as long as they're healthy, right? And so I treat them just like dogs and cats in that I'm going to pick the drug that best suits their needs for anesthesia induction. Um, I actually don't use a lot of propofol in rabbits. Um, and the only reason is because a potential side effect of propofol is apnea. And if I already have a patient that's hard to intubate, I may make that that much harder for myself. And so um, I, you can use propofol. There's no problem using propofol in a healthy rabbit, but I don't want to make it harder on myself. So I tend to avoid it. Also, rabbits get pretty hypotensive under anesthesia. And I know it's transient, but I don't want to add to that if I can avoid it. So I tend to use either alfaxlone and a benzodiazepine, so primarily midazolam, or ketamine and a benzodiazepine. If, yeah. they, if you have a sick rabbit and they have a, you know, severe cardiac disease or something, you could use a Tomidate. That would be totally fine as well. Um, so I just kind of tailor it for their specific comorbidities and needs. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, um, sometimes I'm thinking like, have I been in this too long? Because I still will, you know, in a healthy rabbit, I would still kind of probably reach for my Ketbal induction. But then I'm yeah. like, should I be? Am I too old school? All right, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I use ket that, I, ketamine's my go-to, honestly. Like oh. Alfaxone's great. I love it, but ketamine has analgesia. Like it has oh. all kinds of other benefits. It's gonna help the heart rate and blood pressure a little bit. You know, a little bit after induction. So it has a lot of pros. It's great. I do like ketamine. I mean, uh, you know, I, I just think like it has so many uses in vet med and. And uh, now that we kind of are able to titrate it a little bit better than we were 20 years ago, just giving these whopping doses, um, I think that it's it's really got a lot of nice nuances that I think are are beneficial for our patients, especially from a pain management perspective, macroducing perspective, everything. Yep. Yay, exactly. Yep. <laughs> I <right>. love it. <laughs> so let's talk local blocks now, because I mean, I love my local anesthesia. 
Do you utilize a lot of local anesthetics in these patients? Um, are you doing anything like, I know that this particular case, we're talking about a spay procedure, but what if we were talking about maybe like a cystotomy or something like that? Are you utilizing um, line blocks, epidurals, mm-hmm. anything on these patients? Yeah, definitely. The same things that we do with dogs and cats can really be applied uh, to our rabbit patients as well. And so if the procedure warrants an epidural, then by all means, we can do an epidural. And we do it in the same way that we would a dog or a cat. We use the same drugs, um, you know, either local anesthetics with or without um, an opioid, an opioid alone, etc. So um, we're utilizing noceta in these guys, not for epidurals, but you know, for local uh, blockades, we're doing incisional blocks. I've done chest tube blocks and patient rabbits that have chest tubes. So really, for the most part, what we're doing in dogs and cats can be applied to these patients. Dental blocks are a little bit iffy just because when you look at their skull, just finding the foramen, it's really difficult to get needles in there. But if you can find it, you can certainly do it. Awesome. All right. You know that I love adding a local block and making it as multimodal as possible. Absolutely. Let's say my anesthetic goes great. What are some good recovery tips for uh, our rabbit friends? Sure. So I often um, will wake them up in the OR if we have the space and time so that we don't have to like drag them out of their warm bear hugger blanket or whatever they're, you know, being warmed with. Uh, And so we'll just turn off the gas uh, right there. And, um, you know, the key for recovery in these guys is pain management, keeping them warm making sure they stay hydrated and getting them eating as soon as possible. And so for pain management, depending on how long your procedure is, like in a private practice setting, you're not going to need to give post-ops right away because your surgeon's going to be very fast. In a teaching hospital, it's a little bit different situation and our procedures take a little bit longer. Um, uh, So, you know, giving our post-op opioids when appropriate, using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory when appropriate, we use a lot of meloxicam in these guys. And then, yeah, keeping them warm and making sure they're stable afterwards. I kind of treat them like a brachycephalic in that I do not extubate them until I absolutely have to. Again, because they're difficult to intubate or potentially difficult, I don't want to get into a situation where everything went great. I pulled the tube a little bit too soon and then they start to obstruct and I can't get the tube back in. So I wait till the last minute to pull it. And they show us the same signs as dogs and cats. So, you know, they're, um, you know, swallowing, starting to chew, uh, you know, they want the tube out. And so, you know, when to pull it. As far as your spay, your rabbit spay patients, do they usually stay overnight? Are they usually pretty good to go home that same day? I think it depends on the type of clinic you're working in and what time of day the spay was done and um, you know, how well it went overall. So we don't like to send anything home until we know that they're eating. And uh, sometimes they may not eat on their own afterwards because they're a little bit too sedated or they're a little bit painful. And so we're going to potentially have to syringe or hand feed them. Uh, and so there's a lot of different specialized diets that we can give to these guys um, to supplement their food. Um, and sometimes we have to show the owners how to do that if they don't know already. So just making sure that they're eating and drinking on their own. And if that happens that night, then that's fine. Um, And if it doesn't happen until the next day, then that's fine. Um, For us in a teaching hospital, we often keep them overnight. But in a clinical practice, I suspect that a lot of people are sending them home the same day. All right. And then just one more thing. Let's talk 
how do you feel? Are you ever giving your rabbit surgical patients um, Serenia? So that's kind of the new concept, actually, and you absolutely can, but they don't vomit, right? And so right. they their anatomy um, is such that if you see a vomiting rabbit, there's something horribly wrong with that patient. So there's some studies that are going on right now that show that that we potentially can give it to them, but it would be for pure nausea and not for as an antiemetic, since we don't really have to worry about that in those guys. One of the things that just popped up is people using lidocaine as a CRI in these guys, um, as a oh yeah, as an analgesic That's a good point. and a prokinetic, yeah. So to help with some of yeah. the GI stuff. Yeah, I want to say that the place that I was working, um, uh, and shout out to the exotics department at Mount Laurel Animal Hospital, because they're pretty amazing over there. But I'm pretty sure that they were running some lidocaine CRIs on their rabbit surgical patients for that exact reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. And I would say that's something that's just popped up in the last, like, couple years. It didn't used to be. Um, very prominent. And I love the idea of it. One of the things that scares me a little bit, though, is that because they can have such a horrible time with hypotension during uh, any anesthetic procedure, it's a negative inotrope. So are we contributing to hypotension if we're using it, you know, peri-anesthetic? But for post-op, I definitely think it has uh, some potential uh, for those patients. One thing before we let you go, Jody. Let's say uh, somebody is really fascinated by everything you're saying and is like, I want to do that. I want to do what she's doing. Uh, what advice would you have for technicians who are interested in learning more or getting better at exotic anesthesia? Uh, definitely going to as much CE as possible uh, because there's um, – I think it's a great way to learn uh, like what is happening now in exotic animal practice. There's so much free CE, like uh, Lefebvre Vet, it's L-A-F-E-B-E-R, Lefebvre. They actually have a whole section of CE that's free um, that people can take. And so it's all exotics uh, related. And so just finding like legit CE is really helpful. I think also... If you're really that interested, you should find a mentor and try to, you know, volunteer or find a clinic that sees exotics and just get in there and get your hands dirty. Uh, because I think, uh, I don't know, that's how a lot of people learn. And to really get the true experience of that is to be mentored by someone and get to work side by side with someone who knows what they're doing so that you can get the most for it, you know, out of it. No, that's great advice. Yes, yes. And guys, we will put a link to the Lefebvre vet in our show notes if you guys are interested in that. And we will put all the details on Jody and her bio in our show notes as well. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast and walking us through rabbit anesthesia, which can be terrifying. <laughs> Probably, definitely, if I had to do it again, I would have a little bit of hesitation, but at least knowing that some of the stuff I remember is still valid, it makes me feel pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I literally like to talk about rabbit anesthesia forever, and it's just so fun, and I just want people to be comfortable with it and, and know that you can do an excellent job and not be scared. You know, we didn't even talk about monitoring. I just realized that. <laughs> we didn't. We were just talking about drugs. I mean, listen, we're going to have you back for a part two. And we're going to talk about rabbit monitoring. And we'll talk yes. about ways to deal with rabbit hypotension and hypothermia. Oh, heck uh, yeah. And it's going to be great. Stay tuned, you guys, for rabbit part two. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for being a guest, Jody. And uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time.